Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Law and Blockchain Podcast, hosted by Amy Wan, CEO of SageWise, a safety net for smart contracts and consultant for Security Token Academy. Hi, everybody. This is Amy Wan, from your host for the Law and Blockchain Podcast, and we have a special guest here today. We've got Georgia Quinn, who's general counsel over at CoinList. Now, CoinList is one of the premier um, security token offering platforms out there, and Georgia and I actually go way back from the crowdfunding days. It kind of seems like everyone from crowdfunding has moved over into the, the token industry. So, Georgia, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Amy. I really appreciate it. And yeah, we're like bad pennies. We just keep turning up. (laughs) So Georgia, can you quickly tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a securities attorney. Um, I started my practice quite a while ago, sadly, at uh, Wild Gotchel here in New York, which is where I'm based. Um, I then moved to a smaller firm called Seifarth Shaw that had a legal technology practice, which is where I really started to develop my love for legal technology and technology products. Um, So after working there for a few years, I started my own legal technology company called iDisclose. And it basically automates the filings of certain SEC documents, uh, some of those being the crowdfunding documents. Um, and while working at iDisclose, um, I started working closely with um, AngelList and Republic. Um, Republic is uh, a spinoff of AngelList that conducts crowdfunding offerings. And while working with that team, um, I developed a good relationship. And um, as you know, you may know, CoinList also is a spinoff of AngelList. And so when they made that determination that CoinList was going to be an independent entity, they tapped me for the general counsel position. And um, it's been a really great experience. I've been here since January and, um, you know, huge learning curve, but a great group of people and, you know, just a fascinating industry. Fantastic. Well, so I don't want this show to be like, oh, what is the Howie test? Because I feel like if you've attended like one or two, you know, blockchain or crypto conferences in 2017, everyone's basically beat that topic into the ground. I've never seen so many non-lawyers know the Howie test before. But let's talk about more interesting things, more nuanced things. Can you speak about the evolution of the SAFT, you know, how it came about and how everyone kind of looks at it now? Sure. So the SAFT, you know, um, and initially kind of drafted and, and envisioned embodied by Marco Santori. Um, and it was really trying to solve a temporal problem, right? The issue is we have this concept of tokens and They may or may not at some point be securities, but certainly before the platform is built, before, you know, we have any functioning network, um, this is definitely a speculative investment. This definitely looks and smells like a security. And so the concept of the SAFT was to bifurcate those two instruments and issue something at a point in time that was obviously a security, would be treated like a security, would find an exemption or be registered and, you know, kind of 
kick the can, for lack of a better term, until at some point in the future, those tokens actually were created, could be distributed. And then at that point in time, you could make another determination as to whether or not they were securities. But regardless, you could still get that influx of capital into the company that they needed so they could start building their project. And then, like I said, kick the can down the road um, to make the determination in the future as to whether those tokens were securities or not. And conceptually, I think it was a great idea, right? I mean, it really solved that chicken egg problem. However, in execution, it really fell short because it lacked really any sort of investor protections that you would see from just about any other type of security. And I always kind of feel like they they got the business terms of the security. And then when they were drafting it, they forgot about all of the other terms. So like, you know, the pages you usually see about um, what happens in the event of a bankruptcy or liquidation and how you can transfer these things and how they can be assigned. And even just some of like the more boilerplate, like legal language was really missing in the original, you know, documents. And so I think over time, people have started to add those provisions in, make them a little more user-friendly. The term SAFT now has, you know, a lot of bad connotations just because a lot of companies issued things using SAFTs um, yeah. fraudulently and, and you know, without um, abiding by certain securities laws. So people are not wanting to use the term SAFT. I don't really care, you know, what you call it. I just think that it needs to have the proper investor protections and the, you know, basic functionality that typical securities have. Um, now a lot of people are, are calling it, you know, just a purchase agreement for tokens or, or things. And it really is basically just a SAFT with a different name on top of the piece of paper. And again, I mean, I'm fine, whatever, whatever you want to call it. To me, I want to look, you know, at the substance of the document and make sure that it's got the appropriate terms for these types of investors and, you know, takes care of all of the legal provisions and things that could potentially happen in the future. One um, interesting security that's out there is the DPA, which Republic has um, kind of spearheaded. And this is a debt payable in assets. So it can be payable at maturity in tokens or in cash. It, you know, it's kind of a, like a contingent payment debt instrument. And so, um, it has a lot of the protections that you would see in a debt instrument. Now, again, if a company is going to try to issue something like this, they got to look at their, their capital structure and can they really support debt and will it, you know, prevent them from uh, being able to acquire, you know, additional debt in the future? And what were the, will their shareholders think? Will they be subordinated to this, you know, to these instruments? And, um, you know, so there's a big analysis that's going to have to be done, but from an investor standpoint, it definitely, um, has a lot uh, better characteristics, um, you know, from 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 that side of the of the table. And I think you know, other than SAFs and um, you know the DAP, I think there's been a, a proliferation of other instruments, right? Like I've heard of you know stock purchase agreements that convert to tokens and vice versa, and and safeties and all this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, again, I think they're all just getting at this, the the initial flaw of the SAFT, which was lack of investor protection. So all of these instruments are basically the same thing, but just adding investor protections in different ways. Yeah. So let's talk about the whole security versus utility 
debate for a second. I know it's died down a little bit from what it was in 2017, but you know, um, last year there were all these people running around rampant thinking, oh, I can raise a ton of money and issue this you know, digital asset that is supposed to have some sort of utility and thus it's not a security. And we have found out that's not really the case, but you know, Director Hinman has come out and said, um, or at least made comments about Ethereum being sufficiently decentralized, that it's not a security anymore. So where are we in that debate? And do you think the SEC is ever going to come out and say, okay, well, this is what we think a utility, a pure utility token looks like? Um, yes, this is a great question. This is really timely too. Um, I want to unpack it in a couple ways. The first is just take the last your last question first and is the sec going to come out and say this is what a utility yeah no okay the sec is not going to come and tell us what is and what isn't what's going to happen is people are going to go to the sec and say here is a set of facts and circumstances i would like for this to not be treated as a security and they could make a determination on that right but they're not going to take it upon themselves to put this rubric in place what we're we're trying to do and I'm trying to do is kind of come up with some sort of industry bought in um, around or industry buy-in around the parameters of a utility token and what that could mean. Um, so I think that is probably a better place to go because, you know, reg this, it's not the regulator's job, right. To come in and, and right. give you how to run your business and how to structure your securities. That's, industry's job and the regulators simply say yes or no. Um, but the one really important thing I want people to think about when we talk about utility tokens is this concept of, you know, there are these cryptocurrency type tokens that I, I would categorize. And then there are these more, what I would call like a true utility token, right? So a cryptocurrency token like Bitcoin or Ether you know, Litecoin or whatever, uh, those are really fungible for transactions. Those are currencies. Those, you know, that is the, the principal purpose that they serve. And they don't have another function um, other than to provide consideration for goods and services, right? Um, but we have this whole other world of tokens and and token-based securities or whatever, you know, we decide to call them that actually serve a a purpose within their network, whether it's file storage or, you know, video upload access or whatever it is on that network, they are serving that functional purpose. And they may not be in this like decentralized, uh, you know, 100% decentralized uh, rubric that, that Hinman set up and that he mentioned, but they still nonetheless are utilities, right? No one would look at them and say, that's a security, that's a proxy for the valuation of, of, an, of a corporation or an entity, right? People would say that is more like a Starbucks point because it gets you goods and services on their network. Um, so I, you know, I, I want to make sure that when we think about this concept of a utility token and what would not qualify as a security, we're not excluding um, the instruments in either of these categories because they, they do have quite different characteristics and they're both extremely important. And, um, you know, I think we get people in one camp or the other and they fight really hard for one or the other. And we just need to make sure that both of these have their day.
Yeah, definitely. And so what do you think, what do you think is going to happen to all these utility tokens that came out in 2017 that, you know, honestly, they really were securities? Yeah. So sorry, sorry for that. Um, (laughs) I think that the, um, all of these issuances that we've seen like throughout 2017, even the earlier part of 2018, at the time those were sold, they were of course securities. The networks weren't even established. Once these tokens start to function and we see what they do and how they behave and what, frankly, what people do with them, you know, like how are they using them? Are they, are they purchasing them to utilize within the network and to get receive a good or a service or participate in a certain way? Or are they purchasing them to buy and sell them on a third party exchange, right? Like those are two fundamentally different use cases. And they, that analysis will, will for the most part, determine whether or not those are security. So the problem we've had to date is that these tokens haven't been issued. Nobody's been using them. No networks have been developed. Now that we're actually seeing them in use, we can really make do the analysis and make a determination. Are these securities? Are they not? You know, what are the characteristics that, that, you know, provide that line? Yeah, definitely. So I have a bit of a, a brain teaser for you. And, um, you know, I, I haven't found anyone that can answer this question. I don't even know the answer to it, but, you know, to the extent that um, a, a project launches what they deem to be a, utility, to, uh, sorry, a security token. Um, and, you know, there has to be reporting around it, but at the same time, it's meant to be a decentralized project um, like Ethereum or, or any of these other things. You know, how, how are they going to conform with securities laws if it really is a decentralized network? Because, you know, obviously under securities laws, there are all these reporting requirements and traditionally a very centralized organization has taken care of that. But if it's just launched into the world and the organization backs away and says, hey, the network is yours now, you know, who reports? Well, I mean, that gets to some really interesting questions also about jurisdiction. And what is the entity like, because there's, if they don't report, right. I mean, you're telling me there's not a, a person, there's not a human being there to actually do any of the legal requirements and documentation. So we're going straight to enforcement and who is the action brought against? What is the entity? Like the way our legal system is set up is it's based on people, right? We don't, it's based on individuals and, and entities. And as we know, entities are people. So if there is no person to bring a claim against, if there is no person to sue, um, I'm not really sure what the recourse is. Yeah. It's a also, interesting new world. If they put something into place, right, that operates on its own, how do you enjoin that? I have no idea. Especially to the extent that these things are very decentralized. Even if you look at EOS, which has 21 block producers, right? If you have one country that puts out an order that says, hey, you have to do this or not do this or reverse whatever, I mean, what are you going to make? 21 block producers in 21 different countries follow that? I don't know. I don't know how that's possible, but I don't know. It's a brave new world. We'll have to see. 
um, you talked about jurisdiction shopping or, you know, jurisdictions. And, and what I've seen over the past year is a lot of technologies get really, really creative with, um, with jurisdiction shopping and, and going, you know, offshore and forming these offshore entities with offshore foundations and setting up all these crazy legal structures. Um, do you think that's going to hold up at the end of the day? And, and maybe this is a nuanced question because it's not just from a securities perspective. It, you know, there are tax perspectives, money transmitter perspectives as well. But do you have any thoughts on that? Amy, you know I do. Um, <laughs> so um, the issue for me, like, I, and I can't speak to tax, right? I'm not a tax lawyer. I'm a securities lawyer. But the thing that I think people forget um, when they're doing all of these crazy jurisdictions and stuff is it really doesn't matter where the company is. The only part that matters where the company is is like ultimately in some sort of action against the company. And if you can serve process on them. So if you're in like some country that has no extradition and we can't serve process on you and we can't bring a lawsuit against you. I mean, that's one thing. Although if that's your reason for operating there, I don't know why anyone would want to do business with you. <laughs> um, but the real, you know, linchpin of, of the securities law has nothing to do with the locus of the, of the business. It's the locus of the investor, the locus of the user, the trader, the client. So if you want U.S. investors, guess what? You have to abide by U.S. securities law. If you want U.K. investors, U.K. securities law. Like, that's just the way it is. So, um, you know, I'm glad that you get some special tax treatment in, in Switzerland, but it's still not going to change the fact that if you want U.S. investors, you've got to abide by the U.S. securities laws. Yeah. Um, and just, like, another point on that, a lot of people... Um, are claiming that they're doing Reg S offerings. So as you know, Regulation S is, a, is a, a rule under the 33 Act that allows issuers to do offshore securities offerings if they're not reaching U.S. investors, they're not taking U.S. investors, they're not advertising to U.S. investors. They can solicit uh, foreign investors into their, their offerings and they won't run afoul of U.S. securities law. Okay, but it doesn't say that you don't have to then abide by all of the securities laws and the jurisdictions that you're taking money from, right? Because again, that's where the, the basis of the law comes from. It's the place where you're soliciting money, the investors that you're taking money from. And so just because somebody says, oh, I'm complying with Reg S, it's like a relatively meaningless thing to say, right? It just means you're not complying with US law. <laughs> um, so in order to actually conduct compliant foreign offerings, you do need to check the jurisdictions of all of the countries where you're going to be taking investor dollars from and make sure that you're not running afoul. And the, most of the laws have, are very similar to the U.S. where they have registration requirements and exemptions. And so you just got to figure out what's the best for you in that jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, move on from Reg S to Reg A plus real quick. You know, Reg A plus is one of those regulations that allows you to raise up to $50 million from non-accredited investors. So, you know, they don't have to be super rich. Um, and those investors can be in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I've heard of a number of companies applying for uh, Reggae Plus offerings in which they will be doing a token sale as opposed to like, you know, some sort of traditional equity sale. But I haven't heard a lot of news in terms of those types of offerings actually getting qualified or approved by the SEC. Do you know anything about that? 
Yeah, I haven't seen a single one get qualified. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm not impressed with Reggae Plus. I've been, we've been talking about Reggae Plus. We've been, you know, thinking about Reggae Plus for over six years now, frankly. And I haven't seen anything happen, right? I haven't seen any great deals come out of Reggae Plus. I've seen very few deals, frankly, come out of Reggae Plus. And I made this point um, last week, and, and I think it's, it's still valid. I don't think that, um, like, you know, the people that are excited about Reggae Plus are lawyers and accountants. <laughs> because there's work for them. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't really see any issuers that are like, woo, Reggae Plus, that sounds great for me. I want to do all of this paperwork. I want to have these ongoing reporting requirements. And I want an audit. Yes, Reggae Plus is for me, right? I, I just lawyers really like it because it's a ton of paperwork. It's a ton of, you know, and, and accountants because you've got to do an audit. And, you know, I haven't really heard law firms quote anything less than about a hundred thousand to do a reggae plus deal. Um, so I think that reggae plus was probably invented by lawyers for lawyers, um, versus something more like a reg CF, where if we could get that, um, cap up, that might be something really meaningful. You know, if we could get it up to five or 10 million, that, that starts to, to really make a difference for an entrepreneur. And a conversation right now just turns so sad because I feel like you and I and everyone in the crowdfunding industry has been having this conversation for like five years. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. It's like we are repeating ourselves, but um, I don't know. I feel like somebody's going to listen. I hope so. Um, let's talk about tokenization structure real quick. I see a lot of people running around pushing this dual structure concept and they're like, oh, you know, it's okay. So the dual structure concept is, oh, we're going to go and sell two types of tokens. One represents equity. The other is a utility token. And because we're selling both at the same time, but we're really selling the equity token, but gifting the utility one, then the utility token, you know, cannot be a security. And I have doubts about that. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, it, it, just because you call something by a different name does not mean it's not a security. And also just because it's not equity doesn't mean it's not a security, right? There's all kinds of things that aren't equity that are securities. So, um, I mean, I have no problem with the dual structure and I think that, um, it can be used like very creatively, but it's not going to change the ultimate facts and circumstances analysis as to whether or not that other token is a security or not. Right. And I don't want to talk about the Howey test, but you're going to have to run <laughs> and you know, you're going to have to do the same analysis that you would just by virtue, sheer virtue of offering two things at the same time is not going to make one deemed not a security. Yeah. Um, so out of curiosity, and maybe this is more geared towards the the attorneys out there that might be listening to this podcast, but you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a UPenn law professor that came out with a study. They went and they audited, um, I think it was like 30 or 80 or something of the, the most valuable smart contracts out there. And they compared it to what the ICO campaigns actually said during their token sale, and they found that the vast majority of representations that were made did not match up to what was actually coded in the smart contract, right? So that ICO talked about, you know, advisor vesting schedules or, oh, um, there's a billion dollar 
cap on the number of tokens that can exist. None of this was actually put into the smart contract. So do you have any thoughts about that? Do you think you know, the, the law firms representing these clients you know, need to start getting more into the weeds of a lot of this technology stuff? Or is it just the business and the, the developer people need to talk to each other? I think there's a couple of issues. Um, first, obviously, we knew a lot of those deals were fraudulent, right? We just, there were far too many of them. They were raising too much money. They were doing it in a very unregulated way. And yeah, they, it was, it was fraud. It was, it was fraud. Um, but I think there's also some issues with the timing, right? And the way companies, just any company, tech company, whatever kind of company, um, operate and the fact that they did the offering and they said what they thought they were going to do and what they intended to do. But then as they got into the weeds and started really, you know, writing that contract and, and coding it and developing their product, it turned out that things needed to change and they needed to pivot and they needed to make alterations. And so what you want to do and if you have good securities counsel is you provide disclosure when you're conducting the offering that allows that flexibility, right? Because most of these people were like, this was their first project. This was their first like experience in entrepreneurship. They, you know, are learning on the fly and to expect someone to be able to, you know, ex ante know all of the, the ins and outs and turns and things that that product is going to need is crazy. So, you know, you need to, as a, I mean, this is one of the key elements of securities law, right? Is being able to balance that disclosure and provide enough information so that an investor can make an informed investment decision, but also give the issuer the flexibility and freedom so that they can operate their business. And I and, think that, yeah, I think that actually brings up a really interesting point, which is, you know, in the traditional startup industry, you're expected to pivot and iterate and you're expected to change a lot and not really know um, you know, how your product is going to have to change. You have to adapt, right? And yet these utility token things that people are putting out into the world, they're very rigid, right? Once you put it out, you know, very often you, you really can't change it. Yeah. And that is just a very fundamental issue, right? And so that's where once you do have you know, this kind of immutable sort of um, contract or product, for lack of a better way to describe it, uh, that disclosure has to be rock solid, right? It has to be exactly what that is. But um, up until you have that, you know, fully developed uh, token and, and, and smart contract, you need to have the flexibility to, to be able to modify and change and iterate. And I mean, I think that's a really good point, Amy, because again, when you're talking about people that are doing, you know, these innovative things. And this is probably their first time, you know, as an entrepreneur to try to get all of that right. The first time you do it is really, I don't know. I don't know how possible it is. So, <laughs> so, I mean, this is definitely something that, that people should be thinking about. All right. So last question, you know, uh, right now there's a lot of excitement around the security token industry. People are saying it's going to be the next big thing. It's going to be, you know, this multi-trillion dollar industry. Do you agree with that? And why or why not? So I think there is a lot of potential value in tokenizing certain assets and uh, utilizing, uh, you know, security tokens for certain things. Um, I don't think it's going to be this like 
huge wave. I think if anything, it will happen like most legitimate new forms of securities, which is there are these early adopters and it gets some traction and then more and more people use it. And then finally, you know, everybody's on E-Trade. But um, I I don't think it's going to be this like massive tidal wave. And also I don't think people are fully appreciating all of the issues around security tokens and the different, again, the different types of, of security tokens out there, right? Like I was kind of outlining before this concept of like a cryptocurrency that's really used as a, a source of consideration uh, versus something that's more of like a utility type token that has a use utilization within a network versus, you know, a security token, which is kind of somewhere in between and, um, but again, there can be a lot of different flavors and a lot of different use cases. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people are looking at it for real estate. A lot of people are looking at it for other types of like asset backed securities. Um, I just want people to kind of think about why it's different than asset backed securities, which is already a class of securities that we have that is, you know, a tradable asset that people can, can purchase. So what's different here? Is it just because we're adding blockchain technology? Is it because we're utilizing a new like cocktail of exemptions to allow, you know, broader access for investors, but something has to be different to make it better than the alternatives that are already out there. And I'm, and I think that there there is something out there. And I think a lot of people are coming up with some really good ideas. Um, what some people are forgetting about is some of the basic securities laws issues. So if we're going to take an asset and put it in SPV and then issue tokens out of that, which represent interest in that asset, you're going to run into, you know, 12 G caps and potentially 99 holder rule, right? Depending on what that asset is and what 40 act exemption you're relying on. And these are the kind of things that make me nervous when people are just saying how simple mm-hmm. it is to tokenize and do this. And I, and they haven't thought through, you know, kind of the legal ramifications because let's say 12 G caps kick in, what are you going to register this as a public company? And maybe that's the answer. And maybe people don't have a problem doing that, but now why didn't you just do that in the first place? It's <laughs> funny. Um, Georgia, how can people find you and find CoinList? Uh, so CoinList is uh, coinlist.co, and um, I have a Twitter handle, Georgia Quinn S E S Q Esquire. Um, so if somehow after hearing me ramble on, you actually want to reach out, you're more than welcome. <laughs> Fantastic. Georgia Quinn, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Amy.